0: Hi there, my name is Paddy Butler and this podcast is brought to you from Liberia, a bookshop by Second Home. You may not have yet heard it, but we hit L.A. last summer with the launch of our first U.S. site. And to kick it all off, we hosted a series of events at the Second Home Pavilion space at L.A. Tar Pits, including this fascinating discussion with superstar curator Hans Ulrich Obrist and the enigmatic auteur David Lynch. Earlier in his illustrious career, Lynch directed boundary-pushing films such as The Demented Eraserhead, a veritable midnight acid-induced head melt. But for me, his masterpiece is Blue Velvet, shot with an otherworldly tonal quality and a masterful performance from a menacing Dennis Hopper, along with co-star Isabella Rossellini. Its delirious mise-en-scene captures the essence of 80s cult film. So enough of me, let's go listen to how those wonderful worlds came to be with the man himself, David Lynch, in conversation with Hans Ulrich Obrist.
1: So it's incredible that we can welcome here David for this first conversation in the pavilion. And I thought actually when I entered the pavilion this afternoon that it looks so different from London and that obviously has to do with the light, with this magical light in L.A., And that somehow leads to the first question, David, because you wrote uh, about uh, Los Angeles saying that the first day when you arrived here, the morning when you woke up, you saw this light, and it thrilled your soul. I wanted to ask you to tell us a little bit about that first day in L.A. and the L.A. light. How are you all doing today?
2: (laughs) I came out to Los Angeles in 1970, I just barely missed the woolly mammoths. And um, I arrived at night. I came from Philadelphia. I arrived at night at Sunset and San Vicente and went down San Vicente a couple blocks where I stayed the night in an apartment. And the next morning, I woke up and went outside and I couldn't believe what I saw this Los Angeles light, and I was looking up at it, and I just got the greatest feeling from this light. And I was telling Hans I almost got hit by a car because I wandered into San Vicente uh, looking up in the air. Um, So um, we're very lucky here in LA to have this beautiful uh, light. It's kind of a healing uh, light It gives us a feeling that we can do anything. This is what, my, in my experience.
1: And of course the pavilion is also a device uh, to encounter trees. Uh, we're surrounded here by, by marvelous trees. We both love trees, and I wanted to remember here our dear friend Agnes Varda, who so sadly passed away a few weeks ago, who always said that a day without seeing a tree is a wasted day. You, you also love trees. My father was a research scientist for the Department of Agriculture
2: and loved trees. I always said if you cut my father's leash, he would go right into the woods. And um, his favorite tree was the ponderosa pine. And now I hear that maybe millions of trees are dying every year, among them the ponderosa pines here in in Los Angeles, California. And it's a very, very sad thing. It's this bark beetle because of the little bit of a rise of temperature. It doesn't get dormant in the winter, apparently, and it's taken over and killing all these trees. So um, these trees are so precious to us, as you all know. So um, hopefully we'll get ourselves together and save them.
1: Now, when we visited you in May, we talked a lot about that. We talked about... Extinction and uh, we organized actually in London also an extinction marathon another year in a, in a pavilion And uh, we talked also about transcendental meditation and that it's more urgent today than ever uh, To find positivity and you drew an extraordinary diagram in our meeting in May And I just wanted to ask you to tell us a little bit about that Earlier today I saw Lucita Hurtado uh, who now is 98 and uh, we are showing Lucita's work at the Serpentine, um, and uh, she admires your work, and we spoke about TM, and Lucita actually studied uh, TM with Danny Goodman, who is uh, Penny's brother, Mm -hmm. who is your very dear friend, Uh, so there is an interesting TM connection, and uh, Lucita was saying that uh, it's so important because there is no space and no time in TM, and she said TM makes her feel planetarian. So I wanted to ask you to tell us a little bit more about that and why it's important now. Uh, it's uh, all good news
2: uh, these days. Uh, Twenty years ago, meditation was uh, considered to be a very strange and weird thing. Then yoga came along, and yoga meant for people exercises. And um, then more and more meditation came with yoga, and more people, you know, heard about. Uh, meditation and in the world there are many 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 different forms of meditation and uh, uh, there uh, I practice now for 46 years transcendental meditation is taught by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and the key word is transcend and this drawing I did for Hans I can't do this drawing for you here but I'll give you just a little bit of an example If you take this ceiling here to be the surface of life, that ceiling represents the surface and we see surfaces. And about 300 years ago, scientists wanted to know what is this flesh, what is this stone, what is this wood, what is it really? So they started looking into matter and they went down below the ceiling which is the surface and they found cells and deeper molecules and deeper like in the middle of the room here atoms, and they went deeper and deeper, found these subatomic particles, and down at the floor level, they found these elementary particles, the smallest particles in in manifestation. And then in the 1970s, modern science discovered the unified field, a field underlying all of matter and all of mind, and this field is the unity of all the particles and all the forces in manifestation. This unified field is unmanifest, no things, but even the scientists say everything that is a thing has emerged from this field in what they call spontaneous sequential symmetry breaking. This field is the source of all of the field of relativity. It is non-relative absolute. In Vedic science, they say this is a field of unbounded consciousness. And this consciousness underlying everything has qualities, all positive. So it's a field of unbounded intelligence, unbounded love, unbounded happiness, unbounded creativity, unbounded energy, unbounded power, unbounded peace. Every time a human being experiences this field, transcends and experiences it, they infuse some of that and grow in that. And the side effect of expanding that consciousness and those all positive qualities is negativity starts to recede. So people see things like stress, traumatic stress, anxieties, tension, hate, anger, fear, depression, automatically start to dissipate, to lift away. It's the most beautiful thing for the human being. There's many forms of meditation. Now with brain research, they can tell when a human being really and truly transcends and experiences this field within. And only transcendental meditation guarantees that you're gonna transcend each time. So put that in the, in the hopper, and tomorrow go out and learn this technique, and you'll never be sorry.
1: About two years ago, for your art, and Bettina Korek organized a talk here in LA with Shumon Bazar, Douglas Coland and me interviewing you about uh, about TM. And at that time, you talked about the difference between consciousness and information. And initially, with the introduction, you know, I spoke about the difference between information and memory. So I thought it would be interesting we could talk a little bit more about the difference between consciousness and information. You explained at the time to, Douglas Cope and Schumann-Bazaar and all of us in the room, here is a quote, in the 60s and 70s there were these consciousness-raising groups and they really had nothing to do with raising consciousness. They were raising and exchanging information. That's exactly what the internet does as well. It's not about raising consciousness. When you transcend, you can experience some of that and suffuse some of that and genuinely expand some of the consciousness you had to begin with. So... End of quote. I wanted to ask you how the consciousness-raising groups of the 60s and 70s were in fact spreading information, not consciousness, and how the same is somehow true of the internet, that the internet is not expanding our consciousness, and that actually meditation can expand our consciousness. So then the question, where do you imagine society going as we barrel into this culture of uh, infinite information? I don't know where everything is going, but I do know that Every human
2: being has consciousness, but not every human being has the same amount. Yet, the potential for every one of us, glorious human beings, is infinite consciousness. It just needs unfolding. Infinite consciousness would mean supreme enlightenment, and it's every human being's birthright to one day attain supreme enlightenment, total fulfillment, total liberation immortality, the whole enchilada. It just needs unfolding, and you unfold it by transcending, going to the big treasury, unbounded, infinite, eternal, immutable, immortal consciousness within every one of us human beings. In Transcendental Meditation, you're given a mantra, very specific sound, vibration, thought, taught how to use it. It turns the awareness from out, 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 to within, within, and you start to dive, easy and effortlessly, it's not concentration, not contemplation, and poof, you transcend. Boom, a sublime experience. And every time you transcend, you infuse some of that, you're unfolding your full potential as a human being. It is the most beautiful thing. Consciousness is really the I am-ness of life. We can't say I am without consciousness. Without consciousness, we wouldn't exist. And if we did exist, we wouldn't know it. It's awareness, it's existence, it's uh, I amness. And consciousness is way different than information. So it's consciousness and those all positive qualities is what we want. And then I say if you had a golf ball size consciousness, when you read a book, you have a golf ball size understanding. When you look out, a golf ball size awareness. And when you wake up, a golf ball size wakefulness. But if you could expand that ball of consciousness, then when you read the book, you get more information, more understanding. When you look out, more awareness. A bigger and bigger picture starts to form. Life becomes more like a game than a torment. When you wake up, more wakefulness. Wide awake is enlightened. So it's It's consciousness is the name of the game.
1: Now, Lucita Hurtado told me this afternoon that there is no time and no space in Transcendent Meditation. Can you tell us about
2: that? No, in Transcendental Meditation, is just a mental technique to get you to the Transcendent. In the Transcendent, there is no time and no space. All space, and all time, and all things, babbling brooks, squirrels, stars, galaxies, all emerge from this field. So, and that includes time and space. So it's unmanifest, it's no hyphen thing, yet the potential for all things are there.
1: I found a quote also from Alice Walker. Alice Walker wrote, at one point I learned transcendental meditation. This was 30 something years ago. It took me back to the way that I naturally was as a child, growing up way in the country, rarely seeing people. I was in that state of oneness with creation, and it was as if I didn't exist, except as part of everything," end of quote. So I wanted to ask you to tell us about that, and maybe also your own experience with rurality, the countryside. This is, who made that quote? Alice Walker. This is a very, very beautiful
2: cosmic quote. The um, long and the short of it is, the individual is cosmic and bliss is our nature. It's time now in the world to end the suffering, bring that big bubble of happiness within ourselves, start enjoying life, start enjoying one another, not wanting to blow our heads off and um, uh, start living in a peaceful, beautiful world. The key to all that, the key to enlightenment, the key to peace, lies in that field within. Maharishi brought out uh, the technologies to enliven that field and raise collective consciousness, peace-creating groups. Support those peace-creating groups and uh, very rapidly we can have a whole different world
1: From the countryside, somehow, I wanted to come to the straight story because Zaha Hadid and the pavilion at the Serpentine all began with Zaha Hadid and she always told us, the late Zaha Hadid, who was also a trustee of the Serpentine for more than 20 years, she always said there should be no end to experimentation and that's, in a way, the motto also of these experiments with the pavilions When I asked you some years ago about what is your most experimental film, you told me Straight Story. Can you tell tell us a little bit about that film? And of course, it connects to what we just discussed, the the rural and the countryside. I I love
2: experimenting. And experimenting to me is um, finding solutions to problems and getting a flow of ideas. So um, the reason I said that about the Straight Story, the Straight Story is... A straight story. There's no playing with time or space. It starts one place and goes down a long highway to the goal. And so there were very few elements traveling along. And I read the script and I felt all this emotion coming from it. And I thought, wouldn't it be great? You know, we, a lot of people, you know what I'm talking about. You see a film's where people are crying their heart out on the screen, but it doesn't translate to you. There are some films where it translates. That's a tricky business, to get that emotion on the screen to come into your heart and move you. So with few elements going, every element is so critical to bringing out that emotion so the viewer feels that. And it involved a lot of experimenting. How a sound comes in how it grows when it comes in, how it travels loud and soft and then goes and then maybe swells up and then goes away. All those little differences are real critical to how it moves the heart. And and, and it's, a,
1: it's an experiment. In the same conversation, I also asked you after we talked about TM, I asked you what was your most spiritual movie, uh, and you didn't hesitate a second, and you said... Eraserhead, because it was growing and you also talked about the sentence, you didn't tell me which sentence but it was triggered by a sentence
2: Eraserhead in, for me is my most spiritual f- film and I when I work I get I go by ideas, I say ideas are everything, we don't do anything as human beings without ideas I started getting ideas and out came Eraserhead and Ideas came, and I knew, I felt, I loved the ideas. I didn't know exactly what they were meaning. So when you make a film, you direct a film, you need to know what the meaning is for yourself. And um, when things are abstract, that meaning could be different meanings for others, but for you, you need to know the meaning. One day I'm reading the Bible, and I come upon this one sentence. I said, that's it.
1: Beautiful. <laughs> this is very beautiful. Now, one thing I wanted to always ask you, I've never asked you, is because actually in the introduction, you know, I think Sam mentioned coffee, um, but there's not only coffee, there are also cigarettes. So I was wondering if you consider smoking a form of meditation.
2: Smoking is not a form of meditation. <laughs> Smoking to me, though, is beautiful. I grew up when um doctors were telling how great cigarettes were on TV. and i um, i when I was little, I didn't think uh, grown-ups could be painters. And I was in the ninth grade, and I was at my girlfriend's house. It was about nine thirty or ten. I was in the front yard. <laughs> And I met a kid who didn't go to my school, but uh, went to a private school. I was meeting for the first time, talking to him, and he happened to say his father was a painter. And I thought maybe a house painter, and he said, no, a fine art painter. A bomb went off in my head, and that's all I wanted to do from that moment on. And I, um, what was the question, Hans?
1: If, if, if smoking is medication Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: So I was taken to his father's studio. I already did smoke, but his his father smoked as well, and his father made incredible strong coffee. I started uh, equating smoking and coffee to the art life, and it became an integral part. Looking at a painting, stepping back, taking a smoke, looking at it, getting the next idea to go. It was so beautiful. And this coffee and smoking, just the ideas just, you know, flowed. It was so beautiful for the
1: art life. That's how it came to be. Now also, we wanted to talk about creation and how one can actually... And then we can talk about donuts
2: too. (laughs) I used to think sugar was uh, granulated happiness. And um, now we know that sugar is not that good for us. But a little bit every now and again is is okay.
1: <laughs> now we wanted to also talk about creation from meditation uh, to creation. So how actually meditation helps you create. And you once told me that you don't meditate to get ideas. But there is a moment actually with Malholland Drive when the TV series was cancelled. And uh, it was a very difficult moment and you had to basically... Transformed this idea of a series into a feature film, and uh, actually Canal Plus in France decided to to produce it. And there was a deadline. Uh, and at that moment, actually, meditation did give you ideas. Can you tell us about what what happened there? I'll tell you. And one story before that, um, when the
2: Beatles went to with Maharishi to Rishikesh, India, uh, John Lennon um, was, you know, meditating and he kept getting ideas in meditation. So he asked Maharishi, what happens if I get these ideas for the song in meditation? And Maharishi said, you can gently come out, write down the idea, and then go gently back in and continue meditating. So you don't meditate to get ideas in a way. You meditate to expand that consciousness. And then outside of meditation, Those ideas are gonna flow more and more and more. Stress, negativity, I say, is the enemy to creativity. Stress and all this negativity squeezes the tube through which these ideas flow. We're, We're stressed and it's closed in, and the ideas, bless their heart, they just can't flow through. You start transcending every day, and that bubble of happiness starts growing, That tube just gently opens up, opens up, and the ideas can flow and flow. It's so beautiful, so important.
1: That means then ideas come and... uh,
2: So ideas, I'll tell you the Mulholland Drive thing, I guess, okay. So um, on the Mulholland Drive, it was started as a TV pilot, and ABC hated the pilot. And I always say, a thing isn't finished till it's finished. So a year went by while it was, organized a whole other thing in France to make it into a feature. And the day came when I got the green light to make Mulholland Drive into a feature. And I realized I had zero ideas how to do that. And a little bit of panic set in. So that evening, I sit down to do my evening meditation. And in I go. And as I say, I've told this story a bunch of times, like a string of pearls, one idea after another came to, to do the thing. It all came like a string of
1: pearls. When we talked about the idea and actually how ideas come up, how they can be counted up, you also said that human beings are like detectives. Can you explain that to us?
2: Human beings, I say, are like detectives. The whole world is filled with clues. And you know, everybody, these days, we don't have a lot of time to think about stuff like this. But people have, from time to time, wondered, where were we before we got here to this planet? Where will we go after? Why are we here? What's it all about, Alfie? And so, we wonder about these things, and we look around, and we try to s- see if there's some indication, some clue about you know, what's really going on. And I say, that makes us like detectives.
1: Now I was wondering because we've done so so many interviews together before, um, how we actually on what we could focus today. Also, we've never talked about. So I spoke to my friend Etel Adnan, the poet and artist and writer in Paris, and uh, she talked about this fluidity of practice. She talked about this idea that an idea can lead to many things. When she has an idea, it can become a poem. It can become a piece of uh, of writing. It can become a novel. It can become a play. It can become a painting, a drawing. Uh, and she talked about this fluidity of practice, which I think is so relevant for the 21st century now. And that's something you, you have always done. Can you tell us a little bit about how you come from an idea then to the medium in which you, you realize it?
2: That's a bunch of things. I say every medium is, uh, has its own uh, language, sort of. Every medium talks to us, and it starts talking when we start fiddling with it. Um, as an example, lithography. Once you start fiddling with it, it starts talking to you. This is how I am, this is how I work, this is how, what comes out when you do this and this and this. And every medium is infinitely deep. So you start going, you develop this dialogue with the medium, and then in that dialogue, ideas start coming to work in that medium. And away you go. It's the, it's the way it is. There's ideas out there coming for everything. Ideas for dentistry, ideas for fishermen, ideas for painters, for filmmakers, billions and zillions of ideas. And I say in that book there, a desire for an idea is like a hook on a, um, on a fishing pole. Uh, it's like p- putting, the, a desire is like a bait on a hook uh, for the fishing and then you lower it in and you wait. And just desiring ideas, they'll swim in and you'll catch those ideas. And once in a while, you catch an idea that you love. And when you catch the idea, you need to write it down, as I say, in words, in such a way that when you read those words later, the idea comes back in full. If you don't write it down that way,
1: if you forget an idea, you wanna commit suicide. Now sometimes it is a film, sometimes you make a painting, there's also music, and all of that happens in your studio. We visited your studio in May. It all comes together in one place. Can you tell us a little bit about how this extraordinary studio works? I always, um,
2: well, it's amazing, because I always said, you know, we need a setup in case we catch an idea Uh, We need uh, tools and a place to realize that idea. So this takes money. And um, so um, when I was first starting out, I delivered the Wall Street Journal and it was a pretty great life in a way. I only worked five hours a week and I got my route down to one hour and I made $200 a month, and I, could, I had pretty much everything I, I needed. It was incredible, and that was in the 70s. Now things are different, and um, I'm busy all the time. I've got much more money, but uh, the simple life is gone, and it's, uh, it's kind of a torment how things change. Now p- people, mom and dad, both have to work, and uh, the salaries stay the same and everything else goes up. It's a very strange world now. It's terrible. So uh, hopefully that will change uh,
1: very soon. Now in your studio there is music and the music studio plays an important role. You say music has always to marry the picture, but you also make music on its own right. Can you tell us a little bit about the importance of, of that aspect yeah, that's of that's Yeah,
2: that's the part of the setup. If you get musical ideas, you need a place, a music studio, you need a painting studio, you need a wood shop, you need um, places to do the things. And so in the film, I say there's trillions and trillions of pieces of music, songs, but you want to get the music um, that you to marry to the picture. There's so many times when the music actually goes against the picture in film. It's got to marry to the picture, and how do you know if it's marrying? You use this faculty of called intuition. Intuition is the number one tool for the artist and for all human beings, intuition. Knowing when something is right and knowing when something isn't working and knowing a way to make it right if it's not right. This is, this is a tool. Again, going back to meditation, that field within is a field of all-knowingness.
1: It serves the work. It's so beautiful. Then there is writing. We already mentioned the extraordinary book, Catching the Big Fish, which is a book of your texts and also drawings. More recently, there's The Room to Dream with Christy McKenna. What's what's the role of writing? Uh, For me, I I
2: almost failed English class in high school, but anyway. for me, writing is writing down ideas in such a way that I know what they are when I read them. So it's very important to be able to um, write in such a way that you can read it later. And uh, that's writing to me.
1: And when I asked you once, who are the writers you who inspired you, you mentioned several names, and one of them was uh, Franz Kafka. And I recently interviewed a few years ago Alice Herz-Sommer, who... It's part of my project to interview centenaries. Uh, it's a book project, so I've got interviews with 28 centenaries, from Oskar Niemeyer to Alice Herz-Sommer. Uh, and Alice Herz-Sommer was 106 years old at that time, and I asked her about the recipe, uh, and she said a lot of laughing every day. Uh, but she also told me that when she grew up in Prague, actually, uh, Franz Kafka was a friend of her parents, and he came to their home to read night stories. Um, so... I wanted to ask you about Franz Kafka, because, of course, Kafka is very important for you as a as a writer.
2: I don't know exactly what it is, but when I read his writing, it moves me, his take on life, in every way. So, uh, it just feels like... Um, I, I feel uh, that I um, am close to him. I don't know. I just... The Metamorphosis is my favorite of
1: his. And um, I just love it. And then there is painting. You have a painting studio, uh, sometimes also outdoors. And of course, you started painting in Pennsylvania. That's how it all began. Can you tell us about I started painting, painting much before that, but I continued painting in Philadelphia, yes. And you had an epiphany in painting in Pennsylvania when you had your small cubicle and you painted a garden at night. Can mm. you tell us what happened there?
2: Okay, I was only wanting to be a painter. That was it for me. And I finally ended up at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. And I was in, I painted, I had a a place, a a house uh, with two other guys. And um, I painted there. But I also had a little cubicle in one big, big, big studio room at the Academy. And I was in this little cubicle in the big room one night about 10 o'clock. And I was painting a painting about three foot square of a garden at night. So it was mostly black with some green coming out of the black. And I sat back probably to take a smoke and I'm looking at this painting and from the painting I heard a wind and the green started to move. And I said, oh, a moving painting.
1: And that led to cinema. It's very beautiful. And of course, if Kafka inspired you as a writer, there are also painters who inspire you. And the painter you mention most often in interviews is Edward Hopper. I wanted to ask you why Hopper? You, you, you once told me there is a mystery in it. Well, my all-time favorite is Francis Bacon, but I love
2: Edward Hopper, and I love the mood, and, you know, this, this phrase, room to dream. Every time I see a Hopper painting, there's so much room to dream. Whole stories can come out of each painting. It's really amazing, the mood, the light, and the and the dream that
1: it starts. And then Bacon, I, I really started to make interviews and record artist conversation, because as a teenager, I read that book of David Sylvester with Francis Bacon, which is an extraordinary book, where Sylvester asks Bacon again and again about the work, and of course, Bacon re- Says again and again that he wants no story. Um, with you, it's different. I,
2: I don't care what he thinks. Um, um, I just love his work, and um, but I like stories in a painting. And um, so for me, there's sometimes only just a little bit of a story, maybe a little bit of dialogue, or a little inkling of some movement
1: but a story in, every, in in the work for me. Then, and it's really extraordinary, the many you know, aspects of your work, you as a painter, you as a filmmaker, you as a writer, uh, if we add them all up, it's almost like in quantum physics, where there are, in, in superstring theory, right, there are 11 dimensions, because there is also design. Um, I once saw a lamp, actually, also at Cartier Foundation. You did a lot of your projects with our friend, Hervé Chandès, at the Cartier Foundation. You did an exhibition there of all the aspects of your work, and there was this lamp which includes uh, actually magical rainbow effects and light. Can you tell us about that and the kind of aspect of design? Because we are here in a pavilion, so I thought that would be interesting. I, um,
2: I love light bulbs, and I started putting light bulbs sometimes in my paintings, and so you had to plug the painting in. Um, I just liked the light bulb whether it was on or off. I, I like Christmas tree bulbs. And I started making uh, lamps out of uh, steel and fix-all uh, with some polyester resin uh, thing that would go around the bulb. But they were mainly kind of like sculptures, but they, they, were, they made a light.
1: Any other projects with design you can tell us about?
2: No. The Hubble spacecraft, maybe.
1: <laughs> and did you ever think, because we are here in the pavilion of, uh, of Selgascano, did you ever think of, of doing architecture? Oh,
2: I'd love to do that. Um, my, my, um, I, I live in a Lloyd Wright house and I love Lloyd Wright even more than Frank Lloyd Wright. He's his son. Yep. Lloyd Wright is more minimal. Such a tasty, fantastic architect. And I've seen some other, other architects work and it just drives me crazy.
1: It's a beautiful art form, incredible. So we had architecture, we had design. One of the things we haven't covered yet is opera. You also make opera. There is uh, actually the 97 film Lost Highway in 2003 became an opera with Olga Neuwirth. Can you tell us about that?
2: I had nothing to do with that. Uh, This woman wanted to do her opera, and I said, fine. So uh, she based it on, on, um, what was it, on Lost Highway,
1: right? Lost Highway, yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. So um, that was her take.
1: But you did experiment with things on stage. I, I, I love the idea of a theatrical
2: thing. I've only done one thing in the theatre, and that was the Brooklyn Academy of Music Industrial Symphony Number no. 1. And uh, that was uh, several years ago, but a great experience.
1: Can you tell us about it?
2: Um, well, I'll tell you one thing that I learned. Industrial Symphony Number 1 was a thing that was presented to me and Angelo Badalamenti. And uh, we had two weeks to put it together. And so it was going to be centered around five songs from this singer, Julie Cruz, an album we had done with Julie, me, and Angelo. And then I designed all these things to be on the stage and a bunch of things that happened in and around the music. And so it involved several other people besides just Julie. And we had one day to rehearse, and it was going on that night. So we got there in the morning. A lot of different things happened that cost us our morning. And then by the time we started to rehearse, I realized that it just wasn't gonna happen. So an idea came. And I got everybody together in a long line with the stage manager. And I'd grab this person here almost by the neck. And I'd say, do you see that on the stage? When this happens, you go there and you do this and this and this. And you stay there until, and I'd get the next person. When you see this person do this and this and this, then you go out and you do that and that and that. And so, one by one, everybody knew what to do, but it was never
1: rehearsed. And we went on, and it happened to, you know, thankfully work out. Yeah, it's extraordinary. I saw it the other day on, on YouTube. Then, there is another dimension. I always find it very fascinating, you know, when artists do their own institution. Marcel Brotar with the museum, Department of Eagles, there is a whole history of artists inventing their own institution. The philosopher and writer, Édouard Lisson, started the Institute of All World, and he started a school, um, and you started a foundation. Can you tell us a little bit about your foundation, the David Lynch Foundation? The David Lynch Foundation for Consciousness-Based Education and
2: World Peace. It's basically to get Transcendental Meditation to the people and to support the peace-creating groups. That's the reason it was formed. And now they tell me um, we have helped start about one million people in the practice of transcendental meditation.
1: And you said you, yeah. Big round of applause.
2: Fantastic.
1: And and do you have any unrealized projects with the foundation? Things you like? You hope which will happen? Or? What
2: I'm hoping for the for the foundation and for the world is that we get a real peace on Earth. Real peace, they say, is not just the absence of war. Real peace is the absence of all negativity. Think about it. You can't have any negativity for there to be real peace. So, Maharishi always said, negativity is just like darkness. And you say, well, what is darkness, really? Darkness isn't anything. It's just the absence of something, When the sun comes up, it doesn't have to try at all. Automatically, when the light comes, darkness starts to go. So what light can come up that will remove negativity just like sunlight removes darkness? And the answer is that light of consciousness within. That's what the peace-creating groups do. They enliven that so powerfully as a group that it affects collective consciousness. All the power that exists plus quadrillion to the power more exists in this field. So powerful, all positive power. Enliven that, we got a different world. These peace-creating groups just gotta get bigger and on a permanent basis, and we've got it done. This is the goal of all the well-wishers of humanity. Peace on Earth, happy people, blissful people, enlightened people.
1: This could almost be a beautiful conclusion. I have a few last questions. A few last questions. One is, uh, we spoke about information and consciousness earlier on, and a few weeks ago, I spoke to Tim Berners-Lee. It was in March, and uh, March 2019 marks the 30th anniversary of the World Wide Web. And, of course, Tim Berners-Lee invented the World Wide Web, and we had a long conversation because he's very upset about uh, the potential loss of net neutrality because uh, this idea that there would be a faster internet for people who pay and a slower internet for people who don't pay and he said this is for everyone and uh, it's of course I think interesting these words of Tim Berners-Lee in the context of the pavilion because the Serpentine pavilion and also here uh, actually in LA the second home Serpentine pavilion is is free admission for everyone who, who wants to come so it is For for everyone, but I was interested in this idea on the occasion of the 30th anniversary of the World Wide Web To hear you talk a little bit about how the internet changed the way you work Because of course you did a website early on davidlinch.com, you did online shorts, you did sitcom rabbits Can you tell us a little bit about how over the last 30 years the digital, the World Wide Web Changed or did not change the way you work? I love the
2: analog world. I love the analog and, you know, music. I love analog and, you know, cinema. But I just absolutely love the digital world. And it's made things, so many things possible. It's just an amazing, fantastic thing, this digital world. There's so many things. We can all, If we can think it now, almost we can do anything. It's really, really, really beautiful, and it's only getting better and better and better. There's many things, the internet has brought us, so many people together, there's lots of negative things on the internet, but raise that collective consciousness and that will go. It's, It's a beautiful, beautiful world coming because of these advancements in science, and it's going to, you know, um, service so well these new inventions in a time of peace, it's going to be um, an incredible thing coming. So um, let's keep our eye on the donut and not on the hole.
1: There's actually an interesting new book called The Donut uh, Economy, you know, talking about uh, the donut. Uh, another last question is there is the feature film, and we talked about some of your feature film, and the feature film is in trouble, you said art houses are dead, but you said at the same time there are the TV series and they are for you a place for a continuing story. Uh, You talked about it in the context of Twin Peaks in our last interview, the thing kind of wants to be the way it wants to be. You say there is a a great freedom in that sense that a story can be told in continuum. Can you tell us a little bit about that and about Twin Peaks and if you have any plans for future uh, TV series? No plans for more Twin Peaks, but I love
2: a continuing story. And I love um, the freedom that cable television has brought. And um, I think, I feel sad that uh, the feature film is running into trouble, art house cinema, alternative cinema, and um, they don't get a big screen very often. And if they do, they get it just for a short time. And I love cinema to be built for the big screen, great big sound, great big picture, but it's not really happening right now. So the next best thing is uh, cable television, the freedom to make what you really believe in and and make, if you want, a continuing
1: story. We have now three last questions because I thought in order to make this conversation a little bit more polyphonic, I invited three artists to uh, email me or text me a question for you. Uh, the first question comes from Alex Israel, who is here with us today. Alex's question to you is, fear, violence, paranoia, joy, humor, love. What is for you the most challenging emotional state to achieve in film?
2: Well cinema is the most beautiful language it can say all of those things and but it comes with the idea how to say it comes
1: with an idea And Alex wants to know also if that's different from what you aim to achieve in painting Uh yeah it's different
2: um in painting um you have you know fewer things um it's a different thing uh But it's such a beautiful thing. Cinema is much more
1: powerful for bringing out emotion. The second question comes from Dominique Gonzalez-Ferster from Paris. Dominique cannot be here today with us, but she is here by telepathy. Uh, Dominique's question to you. Is there a place that is still completely unknown? There's many places that are unknown.
2: But um, uh, in enlightenment, you'd know everything. So uh, there's, um, there's so much we don't know. But rather than worry about that, um, know that by knowing which all things are known. And that's in that field Within.
1: Thank you so much. And the last question is from Arthur Jafar, who is here with us today. Arthur Jafar wants to know why you think that Ronnie Rocket was never made. And that, of course, I'm very glad that uh, AJ is asking this question, because the question on the unrealized project is the only recurrent question in all my conversation, because we, so n- we know so much about architects' unrealized projects. I mean, we're sitting here... In a structure of Sel Gascano we know, you know, the structures they wanted to build which aren't built because architects always publish their unrealized projects. But we, We know almost nothing about filmmakers, artists, painters, poets, unrealized projects and there can be so many forms of unrealized projects, projects which have been too big to be realized or too small to be realized. Sildo Meireles once told me he wanted to exhibit a tiny little cube in a big museum, and the whole rest of the museum would have to be empty. So it took him many years, you know, to convince a museum to do it. And then Doris Lessing told us, actually, at the very first marathon in the Serpentine Pavilion, there are the projects we haven't dared to do. Uh, uh, that's another form of unrealized project. And of course, there are many projects which are censored, and then there are economic reasons. So there are many reasons why projects are unrealized. And I'm very glad that AJ has asked you this question. So why do you think Ronnie Rocket* was never made? Um, I will tell you a story.
2: I've told this story before, but um, I wrote Ronnie Rocket right after um, Eraserhead, and it's somewhat in the world of Eraserhead, the same sort of mood. And I um, just didn't know how to get that uh, film made. And somehow a um, producer over at Warner Brothers heard about Eraserhead. He didn't didn't see it. He heard about it, and he wanted to meet me. So I went over to his office and came into his office, and he said, What have you got? And I said, Well, I've got this um, thing called Ronnie Rocket. And he said, What is it? I said, Well, it's a story about a, a man who's three feet tall, who runs on alternating current electricity, and then the man asked me to leave his office.
1: Now you also said once that that would have been uh, a first uh, color film and that also that Jacques Tati was an inspiration on, on Ronnie Rocket and we have not spoken today about Jacques Tati. I was curious if you can tell us a little bit about that. I love Jacques Tati. I think he's a great,
2: great artist, not a visual artist, a sound artist, incredible filmmaker. And the saddest thing, I met his daughter, and Jacques Tati died very depressed and, I think, penniless. And uh, it's a very, very sad thing. A total genius, Jacques
1: Tati. Also, the other day, I saw a very funny interview with you from 91. It's a TV interview at the moment of Twin Peaks uh, on the Late Show. And there you actually tell the story, and I don't know if it's true, about your brother somehow controlling the electricity in D.C. Is there a connection? Uh, no, my brother did all the wiring, or
2: he, he did the wiring diagrams for all the prisons in the state of Washington.
1: Now... One very last question, very, very last question. I promise that this would not be a marathon. I mean, I have hundreds of more questions, but I, th- I thought it would be interesting to have, hear about another unrealized project because you once told me years ago that you might want to do a, a 3D film. Is that still something which is relevant? No, I didn't, I didn't say that. I said um, if an
2: idea came for a 3D film, I'd, I would be, gladly do it. But an idea has not come for a 3D film.
1: And now the very last question. (laughs) Rainer Rainer Maria Rilke wrote this beautiful little book, uh, An Advice to a Young Poet. And I see many young artists here, many young filmmakers here. I wanted to ask you in that Rilke sense, what in 2019 would be your advice to a young artist, to a young filmmaker?
2: I always say the same thing. Find your own voice and don't let anybody fiddle with it. Always have final cut and total artistic control. Why would you make a film if it couldn't be your own film when it's finished? Why? You'd feel like committing suicide, you'd die. Always have final cut and total creative control. Find your own voice, don't take no for an answer. Never turn down a good idea, Don't ever take a bad idea and start Transcendental Meditation.
1: Thank you all for being here. And a big round of applause for David Lynch.
0: Inspirational stuff. Goodness. The quiet genius that is David Lynch. Hans Ulrich Obris, as always, expertly draws out some fantastic material. It all makes the heart glow. Check out secondhome.io for full cultural program listings. And if you want to research a little further, Lynch's book, Room to Dream, is published by Canongate. See you next time.